Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. I'm Dr. Sandeep Kandar, a thoracic surgeon from Virginia Cancer Specialists, with a message about the importance of referring patients with resectable stage 1B through 3A non-small cell lung cancer to a medical oncologist consistent with national guidelines. I believe that all of these patients should be referred to a medical oncologist early in their treatment pathway. Using biopsy samples taken before or during surgery, medical oncologists should order guideline-recommended molecular testing to help inform therapy decisions. In my opinion, it is important to talk to these patients about recurrence rates after surgery, as well as molecular testing, which may impact treatment decisions for eligible patients. These conversations should happen either before surgery or shortly thereafter. Overall, a multidisciplinary team-based approach may help drive informed decisions so patients can receive the right treatment options for them. This content is sponsored by AstraZeneca. Hello, loyal listeners. I'm Tom Varghese your host for today's episode. One of the most exciting opportunities I have is the chance to connect with phenomenal leaders who make a difference in all that they do. On today's Same Surgeon, Different Light episode, we connect with Dr. Susan Moffat-Bruce, who's currently the Chief Executive Officer for the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. The Royal College sets standards for specialty education, accreditation, and assessment, and has over 45,000 fellow members within Canada and internationally. Yes, Dr. Moffat-Bruce is a big deal. What is extraordinary about this visionary leader is the impact she has made in many fields. Dr. Moffat-Bruce is a world-class leader and surgeon with sharp business acumen and passion for value-driven care. A funded research scientist and practicing thoracic surgeon, she has held leadership positions in numerous national and international associations including work as a Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer and Senior Hospital Executive. Prior to the Royal College, Dr. Moffat Bruce served as Executive Director at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center University Hospital, a flagship patient care facility with 700 beds and 70,000 annual admissions, providing coordinary clinical care. She was OSU Wexner Medical Center's inaugural Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer, and in that role, led tremendous achievements, such as a process improvement for a seven-hospital academic medical center. A funded research scientist, Dr. Moffat-Bruce is also a thoracic surgeon who is listed among the top doctor's rankings. She was a professor of surgery and of biomedical informatics at OSU and has developed curriculum for residents and faculty around quality and professionalism. She holds leadership positions in numerous national and international associations. Her passion for learning is evidence in her personal educational achievements. Dr. Moffat Bruce completed medical school and residency in general surgery at Dalhousie University. She undertook a PhD in transplant immunology at the University of Cambridge, England, and completed a cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at Stanford University, California. She has also received advanced leadership training 
at institutions such as Intermountain Healthcare's Leadership Institute, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Moffat Bruce has a Six Sigma Black Belt certification and has also earned her Master's of Business Operational Excellence, as well as an Executive Master's of Business Administration at the Fisher College of Business at Ohio State University. And yet, despite the numerous achievements, tremendous advances, and glass-shattering events, you'll find that Dr. Moffat Bruce is genuinely one of the kindest souls you will ever meet, someone who never forgets her roots, and that everything we do is for the benefit of our patients. Join us for this amazing edition of Same Surgeon, Different Light. I have the absolute incredible pleasure of connecting today with one of the leading lights in our specialty, Dr. Susan Moffat-Bruce. Dr. Moffat-Bruce is currently the Chief Executive Officer of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. So yes, we do have an international superstar today. Dr. Moffat-Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely delighted to be here and uh, really enjoy uh, being part of this very unique series. Obviously, the, the goal of this podcast series is to connect with uh, amazing leaders uh, and really deep dive into their origin stories. So, uh, Dr. Moffat Bruce, uh, let's get started. Uh, you are Canadian, which by definition means that you are one of the nicest human beings on the, in the history of the planet. But talk to us about growing up in Canada. How, how was that? I'd love to hear some stories about your childhood. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So, and I'm actually um, recording this in Ottawa, Canada today, where I reside and I work. I was born in Ontario, which is one of the largest provinces in Canada. And my dad uh, was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer. So not dissimilar to military backgrounds. Um, We moved every couple of years. My mom was also a nurse. And so uh, very much traveled the country uh, following my dad and his progression, um, which in many ways was quite an opportunity because you get to meet new people and and new challenges. It also makes you very, very thoughtful and very um, reflective of how wonderful it is to have a family unit that can really support each other amidst change. Um, so, So that was kind of a part of my growing up that was so inherent was change, constant change. So to clarify, um, it's very similar to our military in the sense that you get moved from station to station. So how many schools did you end up going uh, growing up? Probably six or seven, if wow. I had to add them all up. Yeah, so I was really fortunate because then, you know, you start um, your your school in one school and then you end up in high school in another one, different province. So you get, you know, kind of the flavor, all the different uh, systems. So and then when I actually ended up going to university, I also went to several different universities in different countries. And so that also gave me the great opportunity to see, you know, the American perspective, the Canadian perspective, the uh UK perspective, and I think pretty much uh, gave me uh, insights into all the different ways that not only education, but healthcare is delivered as well. That's incredible. And, and you have uh, one brother, is that correct, Dr. Mouffin-Bruce? I do. I do have one brother who is in Alberta, Canada, uh, and has been out there for many, many years. And as you probably realize, Canada is a pretty big country. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, So it's not that easy to stay connected in person. But as we've learned with COVID, there's lots of different ways to stay connected now. Talk to us about uh, finding your way into medicine and specifically surgery. Uh, how did that come about? Because you're not the usual conventional person, you know, who grew up in a family of physicians and 
Uh, like, uh, talk to us about that story. How, how did you come come into this field? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I often reflect on that. You know, how did I end up here um, when I started there? But I do think that when I was growing up, I was very much influenced by my mom. My mom was a nurse. Um, she was uh, worked in cardiology. She worked in palliative care. She worked in ICU. She worked in long-term care facilities. So I had a great exposure to the healthcare system through the eyes of my mother and a nurse, um, which I think really is invaluable. I then was very fortunate. I went to McGill for my undergraduate and really had a bunch of peers and colleagues that were also interested in medicine. And, and so collectively, we all kind of aspired uh, to be able to get into medicine. And then once I was in, I was hooked, you know, being, I went to Dalhousie in Nova Scotia, had great peers. They were small classes uh, in the Canadian system. Um, and to this day, I still stay connected with my classmates. But really, once I was into medical school and I saw really how it was that we could influence a patient's care and outcome. It, in medical school in Canada, we start taking care, we start seeing patients from day one. And so really wow. having that, yeah, that experiential um, time with patients while you're learning or the physiology and the anatomy really um, made me sure that this is what I want to do. And then once I started getting into the surgery rotations, seeing how really you got to influence so many parts of medicine through surgery, it became really, really the career path that I knew I had to choose for myself. Uh, great mentors, great surgeons that gave me their time that allowed me to, you know, tag along on a, on a donor run or tag along on call. Um, I'm sure the last thing they wanted was a medical student to be on call with them, but they were so, they were so generous with their time. And every bit of that time really influenced my career because, you know, fast forward 30 years later, I feel like I've seen a lot and I've had great mentorship and experiences with uh, fellow surgeons. Now, the amazing part, though, is, is that uh, though your foundational buildup was there in Canada, you did make your way to the United States for at least a part of your training. Is, is that correct? I sure did. Actually, I was so fortunate. I had great uh, training here in Canada. I then had great training in the UK as well at the University of Cambridge, where I completed my PhD. And then I was very fortunate to be able to go to Stanford to my, do my cardiothoracic surgery training. Bruce Wrights was my chair, and I had such great mentorship there and great experiences. Three years at Stanford really changed my life. I mean, it, it uh, not only changed my clinical career, but my aspirations to become a, a leader in healthcare as well. So yes, I did my training there. And then I just completed almost 15 years at the Ohio State University, uh, where I was, you know, a, a full professor there for many years, and I was able to become an academic administrator through those adventures as well. Well, thank you for that thread, because we're going we're gonna to pull on that <laughs> a little bit. Your, uh, you know, this next phase, your career was in incredibly unique. And, and for our listeners, Dr. Moffat Bruce was involved in patient safety efforts and clinical excellence and clinical domains well before it became a very popular aspect or, you know, part of our, our press that we see each and every single day. Talk to us about how you got involved in that, because especially in the early days, it must have been similar to wandering through the Canadian wilderness or something like that. I mean, there was, you were sitting there trying to figure out how to lead the path forwards, but talk to us about how, you know, while you're building up your career as a busy surgeon, you got involved in this space and, and some of the mm -hmm. results that you accomplished at, at Ohio State. 
Well, it, you know, it's a really good question. And when I reflect on it, it's certainly not the career path that I thought I was going to embark on when I was completing my residency. Um, you know, I think what happened was very early on in my career, I was, I was identified as being um, a surgeon that was prepared to spend time in the administrative sphere. I was very much based in team science, uh, very much involved everybody and stakeholders in, in problem solving. And so when I became the first chief quality officer at The Ohio State University, it was, you know, taking the path less traveled for certain. And so went from being a very busy uh, clinician scientist to being what I dub, uh, you know, an academic administrator. It, it was um, not seen as being the thing to do or being a career path that many uh, cardiothoracic surgeons would take. But I had a tremendous opportunity because I had an opportunity to influence so much healthcare, not only locally, but we were also influencing healthcare nationally through the dissemination of our programs and projects that we were doing. Uh, at the Ohio State. And so whilst you often think, you know, what have I left behind? I really wanted to focus on what can I go towards and what can I influence? And, and ultimately, whilst it was an incredibly difficult decision, incredibly difficult pivot in my career path, once I did it and once I started to see how I could influence the healthcare system, I knew that I had made the right decision. And, and to this day, I know I made that the right decision. Well, well but the, the amazing thing was, it wasn't just the pure administration work. No. You did re cutting edge research in this field and got tremendous amount of extramural funding uh, in, in this space. Again, in an era where this wasn't very popular, there weren't like a ton of role models out there you could model your career after. Uh, talk to us about how you were able to balance that, you know, the, the double edges of clinical excellence as well as research excellence as well. Thanks for that question, because it's really probably the highlight of my career thus far. So when I became the chief quality officer, I knew I, I had this opportunity to work with teams to improve processes, improve outcomes. Once we did that, and once we really got traction and we had a cultural transformation around continuous improvement, then the research could be layered on. Uh, one of my um, dear uh, colleagues once said, you know, you can't research bad processes. So we got our processes in place, we got our outcomes uh, sustained, and then we started researching it. And at that time, we were actually able to get a program project grant that basically pulled together not only the College of Medicine, but other disciplines across the Ohio State University, geography, engineering, uh, business, that were really in, um, invested in developing an institute around patient safety. And that work, I mean, it, it, we were able to be funded for work that we had to do anyways, but it made it such that we did it within the context of disseminating all the the work and the projects that we were able to complete. And then ultimately that work became absorbed into the operations, became absorbed into other funded uh, research. And I think really started a very sustainable change in health outcomes research at the Ohio State University. One I'll be forever grateful. But the, the beauty, uh, I mean, for the listeners, the thing that I really love about your work is we all know that there's a lot of people who disparage outcomes research right now nowadays, right? They say that you just look in some big databases and document problems. The work you did though was not only documentation, you went ahead and did something about it. Talk to us right. about how 
even though that's sometimes inefficient and takes some time, how you were able to just navigate forward uh, in those choppy waters? No, absolutely. So the work that we did um, around really improving patient safety was about real-time implementation science. And so whilst we had learned from databases, we actually used only uh, insight to projects that we were working on. We worked on three. One was to improve um, the way that we use clinical alarms. So we know every patient can have an oximeter, you know, ECG monitoring, et cetera. We don't know that it always improves outcomes. We actually showed that we can improve the way we monitor patients and improve outcomes. Project number one, very straightforward, but very impactful. Project number two was to really digitally hotspot using the electronic medical record and the data to say who might be developing an infection, who might be based on a compilation of their you know, vitals, their uh, white blood cell count, their previous exposures, who might be developing it. So really hotspotting uh, predictively where infections could be occurring. And then lastly, we use crew resource management methodology of uh, shared and collective understanding um, to improve communication between patients and providers using um, patient portals. So it was really, again, very practical, um, very um, much what we were doing anyways, and ultimately affected the patient in the moment. And so it was a different approach, and which is maybe perhaps why we were funded because it all made such an impact that we could measure relative to our outcomes. Absolutely brilliant. You seem to say it so eloquently and simply, but we all know how detailed and involved that process was to get to that point. I wanted to pause and let the listeners know, you know, every time that we say that we're busy, sometimes it's great to go and look at some amazing champions. I'll be honest, I don't know how you do all of it. I mean, and in the midst of all this, correct me if I'm wrong, MD, PhD, and you got two master's degrees at the same time. Tell us about that. You know, you're probably the most highly educated woman leader that there is on the face of the planet Earth, but you, you decided to get additional training. How did you go about that process? So very, very important, I think, to what, my, what I feel very strongly is that lifelong learning is essential to us being leaders. When I took over different responsibilities, I realized I needed new skills. You know, our residencies, our fellowships, our medical training, superb. But when you go into these novel or uncharted territories relative to responsibilities, sometimes you need new skills. So I first did a master's of business in operational excellence when I became the chief quality officer. So lean, six sigma, total preventive maintenance, really understanding how to improve processes and have it sustained. And then a little bit later in my career, when I was taking more of the uh, administrative roles in the, in the large hospitals, I did my executive MBA. Again, different ways of thinking, different colleagues, different uh, classmates that you really learn from. And you can apply a lot of what's in other industries to healthcare. And that's what the, uh, the MBA allowed me to do as well. So it was you know, a, a point in time when you need those skills. It's up to us to go find those skills, and then you can adopt them to our environment in healthcare. Talk about how you being a surgeon really helped you in all these different domains, because I'm sure that there were aspects where you found some things that were easily translatable. And then there were probably some tension points also where you may have gotten pulled at times between all these different responsibilities. 
Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I think, first of all, as a surgeon in general, I think we tend to be taught to be leaders. We taught we are taught to solve problems. And I think in the space of outcomes, uh, resource stewardship, that all resonates with us. So I think you immediately have some credibility because we, we've, we've done it and, and in different contexts, but we, we are able to apply it. I think too, when you're looking at the areas within healthcare systems that have the highest acuity, the highest risk, it's often in the perioperative arenas as well. And I think that if you have a, um, a background or you have leadership experience in those areas, again, you have the experiential learning, you have the credibility, you can apply and, and kind of figure out where others are. And so you can meet them there relative to improving the systems in which our patients find themselves. So a long-winded answer to your question. But you were probably, I, I suspect even today, you're probably in many times in rooms where you're literally the only surgeon in, in the room. Yes. Is that correct? Oh, most, most definitely. That, that is absolutely true. And if you're the only surgeon in the room, then you need to understand what other people understand of the problem, where they're at, what they add to the conversation. And I think too, as surgeons, we're used to working in teams, right? So when yeah. we're trying to solve problems, you need nursing at the table, you need perfusion at the table, you need anesthesia at the table, you need administration, you need so many team members. And we're used to doing that. And I think that lends us uh, ourselves to being leaders in these very complex systems thinking challenges. Has there ever been a time where, you know, as a surgeon, we're wired to make decisions quick, we have to fix the problem, right? That's the what we're yeah. all geared and wired to. Were there times where you had to kind of resist that impulse of going in and trying to fix everything right away to kind of let your team members kind of catch up to where you were or? No doubt uh, about it, Tom, absolutely. I think we are really, we're, we're wired to fix problems. And sometimes, first of all, you need to figure out what the problem is you're trying to fix. You need to figure out what the solutions are. And I think that's the beauty of understanding operational excellence is that you have to go through the whole cycle in order to get to the right solution. But yes, impatience, absolutely within my DNA. And sometimes you just kind of have to take a deep breath, figure out how to go forward in a, in a way that's conducive to others. And then usually the outcome is that much better. Well, you know, most people would have been content uh, with what you accomplished at Ohio State, um, and you were, you know, the performing at the top of the level of your, uh, you know, administrative ex excellence, clinical excellence, research excellence, yet you got a calling to come back home to Canada. Uh, tell us about how you were approached and what went into the process in terms of going to the CEO position that you are in right now. So, you know, it's a journey that started almost uh, five years ago, maybe four years ago. I started to get more involved um, looking beyond my current scope, always looking for new challenges, looking for uh, new adventures. And I got re-engaged with the Royal College, uh, which I've been a fellow for you know 30 some years. And when I got back embedded in there, I thought, you know, this is a domain I've not explored education, standard setting, accreditation, lifelong learning. And got very interested in, under, in uh, figuring out how best I could integrate myself into that. I was on several volunteer committees. And then just by chance, um, this opportunity came up to become the, the CEO of the Royal College. 
And it was the right time in, in my career, right time in my life to return to Canada. And then, you know, COVID hit. And so being a new CEO for a national organization representing over 50,000 specialists and physicians amidst the pandemic has been a tremendous opportunity for me to learn, um, apply leadership skills, and get to know the Canadian healthcare system incredibly well. So are you currently doing, I'm assuming, I mean, we're, we're doing this interview right now virtually by, by Zoom, but I, I'm assuming a lot of virtual connections, probably a little bit of a hybrid stuff in terms of uh, in-person visits. Is that currently your life right now? Yes. You know, as of March 13th, we had to all pivot to virtual here in Canada for the most part. Um, Obviously, our clinical work is still done in person, but anything that has the ability to be virtual is still pretty much virtual. We're hoping for 2022 to be more in person. because I think we have lost some of that connectivity for certain Although in many ways for us in Canada, because we're such a large country, we are able now to connect more often, mind you, in a virtual format because of the time zones, et cetera. We also were able to um, leverage virtual connections to examine our um, residents, make sure they got certified uh, in a safe way uh, during COVID as well. So we had to change all of our business processes and we really leverage what we've been learning in this new world that we live in, which is, you know, virtual hybrid at best. As you kind of look back and look forward, I mean, you're in this unique position of having accomplished a tremendous amount in the diverse areas of domain, uh, but you're also in the position of being a CEO of a, of a national organization. Some tips for our listeners, like, how do you do it all? Like I, I, you know, it's mind boggling at times of like, are you like the most organized human being on the face of the world? Or like, how do you balance all these different competing efforts? And how, you know, is, is it, are you very intentional about things that you do? Like for our listeners, like uh, what, what recommendations would you give? So I wish I could say yes to all of those things, actually, Tom, you know, because, because, you know, truly I do write a lot of lists and I'm always checking my, you know, my checklist to make sure that I'm on, on track. You know, I, I do try to be very organized. I do try to develop teams that help support not only the myself, but the work that uh, needs to be done. Um, I'm also incredibly fortunate because my family supports so much of what I do. And, and so I, uh, I am very, very uh, lucky in that sense. But, you know, I think part of what allows me to do so many, to have done so many great things and continue to focus on what's ahead, because there's lots of great things ahead, is really understanding how to apply systems thinking. How do you really think outside of yourself and take it to a higher level to improve whatever process it is that you're involved in. And then part of that is this lifelong learning. So I'd love to say I'm never going back to school again, but I do not know that to be true. I think there is still some learning to be done and I'm so looking forward to that. Looking back at the challenges that you've overcome, Mm -hmm. are there some pride points, things that you are unbelievably proud that you, maybe not in the moment that you were, were, when you were facing that challenge, but now looking back that you were, you were glad that you, you went through that process. Yeah, I think there's probably several, several times that I was really proud of the success, but it took a little time to get there, obviously. I do think that some of the proudest moments that I had really made understanding that quality, patient safety, and team science are real sciences, and that you can make, really apply your academic um, 
acumen and career to it. You know, I think when I started, I have two phenomenal residents who did masters of public health with me. So instead of going into the lab, they came with me and they, they you know, wanted to leverage the learning healthcare system. And Michelle and Chelsea, phenomenal. And I think it really showed that what we do in, in administrative medicine is really impactful and it can be academic and it can make your career incredibly fulfilling. So, so the alignment was critically important then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that you go from strength to strength when you start having like-minded people in that space with you. How would you characterize your mentorship style? Because uh, you, you've not only blazed the path forward and, and accomplished so much uh, on behalf of yourself, on behalf of the team, but you've also been an amazing mentor and coach to several outstanding leaders out there, both here in the United States as well as in Canada. What, how would you describe your mentorship or coaching staff? So I, I love uh, mentoring. I love coaching as well. And I think you really have to have a full spectrum of those that you coach and mentor. So I love getting to know students, residents, fellows, and others that are outside of medicine. I take my time to do that. And I, and I try to be very inclusive in my mentoring and coaching style. I learn a lot more from those that I mentor. And I often think I'm the mentee. And I really like to listen to that, to, to those that are, have the time for me to coach or mentor them. And I think it's a really dynamic process as you go forward. And you cannot have, first of all, I can't have enough mentors. You know, you always are learning, so you always need to gain new mentors. And I try to learn from them and pass it forward to those that I'm actually mentoring and coaching as well. So it's more of an adaptive kind of a leadership style that you're constantly looking to see which style or methodology fits the, the circumstances you're yeah, in. Yeah, the situation, with. the challenges, the environment, the culture that they're working in. You kind of have to read the tea leaves to figure out which way to, to actually, you know, adapt the leadership acumen to that situation or that relationship that you're developing. But I think ultimately, these are relationships that, that last a lifetime. And I think they, in the moment, they seem really important. And later on in life, they get even more important. Tell us uh, about the teams that you currently are working with. This may be a, a little bit of wild imagination, but I'm imagining there's a team at the Royal College. There's probably a team of, uh, the, on the family front. There's a team, uh, you know, in, in the other domains, you know, interactions with the public. Like exactly how many teams do you have or connected with right now? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in team science um, because it's all about the team. So I do have a core team that work within the Royal College. And within that, I have a team that work on exams. I have a team that works on accreditation. I have a team that works on standards. And, and we're all integrated, um, which is really important. I also have a team that works internationally because we, we try to share our standards with our colleagues across the world. And right now, the Royal College is working within about 40 different countries improving um, healthcare through education uh, and lifelong learning. Obviously, there's Team uh, Bruce, which is the one that supports me every day, my two girls and my husband and dogs. And then I'm really fortunate because I'm also associated with the University of Ottawa now, and I've been working very uh, much so to get involved in their quality and patient safety. I'm back to teaching medical students, and that's another awesome team that I'm really um, enjoying re-exploring um, as well. So Life is made up of teams and that they come together to make uh, everybody uh, successful. 
Dr. Moffat Bruce, any final words of wisdom to our listeners? I mean, like if, if somebody is out there, you know, me included, if they say that I want to be Dr. Uh, Susan Moffat Bruce one today, any, any tips or words of advice for those of us who do, do want, want to follow your giant footsteps? You're very kind in saying so. First and foremost, I think, first of all, it's an honor to be here and be part of these conversations. Um, Secondly, I think that to be content with a career like mine or a life like mine, you have to be comfortable with the unconventional. And being comfortable with the unconventional takes time and patience, lots of lots of conversations with mentors and colleagues and friends, but ultimately you have to find comfort in that um, lack of convention and, and say it's okay. And it's a, it's a path less traveled, but it's your path. And I'm, I'm really happy that I've made the choices thus far. And I look forward to the paths I have yet to travel going forward. Dr. Susan Moffat-Brutz, it's been an incredible honor. I mean, uh, you, you are a, a cherished role model for so many of us in the field. And it, it's a great honor to connect with you on today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Light, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.